You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hi, this is Alex Staff, Director of Technology Policy at the Progressive Policy Institute, and you're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from PPI. Last week, the Progressive Policy Institute released its annual Investment Heroes report, authored by today's guest, Dr. Michael Mandel, along with Elliot Long. Hey, Michael, how are you doing? Doing great, Alec. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Um, so excited to talk about your report today. Just to get us started, can you give me an overview of what CapEx or capital expenditure means in real life? I mean, you're an economist, but how would you describe it to someone who isn't an economist? So CapEx is actually at the heart of the Investment Heroes Report. We're, we're looking at the companies that are the top spenders on capital expenditures in the U.S. for 2020. And why? And what is capital, capital expenditures? Why do we care? If you're a worker, the equipment or the buildings that you need to work is all part of capital expenditure. So you know, if you have you work in an office, you need a computer, you need an, an internet connection, you need software. All of these are part of the capital expenditures that your company makes. If you work on a factory floor, you are working with machinery. You know, if you're a, if you're a truck driver, you need a good truck. If you're an airplane pilot, you need a good airplane. All of the capital equipment, software, and um, and buildings that people need to be productive are capital expenditures. Well, that's great. That's, that's helpful for our audience. And I know that this is an annual report you do, uh, and it's been gone, going on for almost a decade now. So what was the uh, spark of inspiration nearly 10 years ago that, that got you to start doing this? Well, you know, we, we know that capital expenditures are, are important for creating good, well-paying jobs. You can't be productive without capital. Workers need it. And we, we realized that just because of the way that uh, the financial reporting system is set up in the US, that companies were not required to report how much they spend in the US, what their capital expenditures were in the US, how much goes into the domestic economy. And we decided to go out and estimate that number for every large uh, non-financial company in the, in, the, in the economy, and then make a list because everybody loves a list. Everybody loves rankings, that's for sure. Everybody loves rankings. And the first year that we did it, I remember that I was, I wouldn't say terrified, but worried that, that somebody would come up with some great objection to our methodology uh, because it does require us making, you know, looking under, looking, looking under the hood, basically, instead of inferring from what the companies do report from how much they're spending in the U.S. But it, the methodology has held up over the last 10 years. And there's always a lot of interest every year because everybody loves a list. Because <laughs> everybody loves lists, exactly. I was gonna, let's go ahead and dive into this, this year's report. Um, so first of all, just what did you find in this year's report? I know that so much of capital investment was probably impacted in some way by the pandemic. Um, which companies you know, have been willing to invest in this kind of tumultuous time? Well, the, 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 the highlight of this report actually was, was Amazon's $33.8 billion in capital spending in the US in 2020, which is an amazing number, much more so than we've seen in any other year that we put out this report. And this represents building out e-commerce fulfillment centers, hiring hundreds of thousands of workers, and otherwise 
putting together the infrastructure that helped deliver all these goods to people that were stuck at home. We also had a lot of bending by broadband providers like Verizon, AT&T, Comcast, Charter, and so forth. And these were all companies that were strengthening the networks, building them out, the, the internet networks that people needed to work from home, to learn from home, to do their medical appointments from home. Really, it was a pretty amazing performance. You've written about this, Alec. It was a pretty amazing performance by the, uh, by the broadband providers in 2020, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, when all of a sudden the pattern of internet usage just soared from home because it was from one day to the next, people were in their office and then the next day they were at home and trying to do their, their work from home. And the networks had to all of a sudden react very quickly and they did a fantastic job. And then we have tech companies like uh, Google Alphabet, Intel, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, and so forth. And these companies were spending also on providing the infrastructure that helped people work from home. And so this, this year was pretty much focused on tech, broadband, e-commerce. Eight out of the 10 companies in the top 10 of the list were in this category. Great, yeah, and I think that, that kind of makes sense as a narrative for this last year when we had this extraordinary situation where people needed to work from home, needed to learn from home, needed to do everything from home in a sense. Um, let's, let's kind of zoom out a little bit. So over the last, you've been, you've been doing this report for 10 years now. Can you talk about some of the trends you've seen, especially over the last five years or so? What's kind of been changing or staying the same? Well, one of the things that has changed a lot is where the place of energy companies were on the list. In some years, there's a was a lot of spending by energy companies, especially as part of the shale oil boom in the U.S. A lot of investment in helping the U.S. become a much bigger producer of oil and natural gas uh, domestically. Really, that was pretty an amazing, a pretty amazing change. Uh, less so, of course, in 2020 because the demand for fuel went way down as people as people stopped flying, as people stopped driving, and so forth. So. That was a really that was a really big change, and then the rise, of course, of the the tech, telecom, and and e-commerce companies to to really rise up that list. Gotcha. So we're we're coming out of the pandemic now, and our economy is starting to recover. How does this kind of impact job growth? Well, let's actually sort of talk about sort of the relationship first between capital expenditure and job growth. You can have job growth without capex. You can have job growth without equipment, but it's but it's like trying to cross the street without shoes on. It's a slow, painful process and you kind of wish you didn't do it. So you go look for where the capital expenditures are in order to understand not just where the job growth is, but where the good job growth is. And I think we're gonna see a rebound, of course, in transportation spending and related to job growth, we're gonna see a rebound in spending on energy investment. Also, that will sort of show up in job growth. The really interesting one is gonna be manufacturing. You know, we don't have very many classic industrial companies on our, on our top 25 list. We've got, we've got Ford and we've got General Motors and we've got companies that officially are in manufacturing but really are not the classic industrial companies. And what we've seen in recent years is a real shortfall in manufacturing investment. And in some sense, that's kind of the weakness of the economy. And this is something that, that the Biden administration has tried to address with the, the pro-manufacturing investment portions of the American Jobs Plan. You know, part of this is investment in semiconductors, a manufacturing which we've actually seen bipartisan support on. But we have to do actually a lot more in terms of manufacturing. That's this is a crux moment because you know Americans are buying a lot of goods right now. 
and there's a lot of the goods are flow, flowing into the country. And it'd be much better if more of them were being made in the U.S. And I think this requires this requires investment. This requires digitization of the U.S. manufacturing sector. And if I had to say, the one thing that I was looking for this year that I did not see that I wish I would have seen is is more gains on the manufacturing side, the classic industrial side, where I would have loved to have seen companies step up to the plate and say, look, I understand that these long global supply chains, 10,000 miles long are fragile. Let's try to sort of shorten them up. Let's try to invest more in the US. This is the, the idea of a resilient manufacturing sector, resilient supply chains is something that is an economy-wide need not so much a, the need of individual companies. So it actually may need more of a assistance from the U.S. government. Gotcha. And I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up the manufacturing sector and you mentioned already the Biden administration's American Jobs Plan, which they're currently pushing um, through Congress. I know this also related to the what's currently being called the Innovation and Competition Act, formerly the Endless Frontiers Act. I know that that bill has billions of dollars in public investment in R&D, including $50 billion in subsidies for semiconductor manufacturing inside the United States. So let me get your perspective on, you know, these two pieces of legislation. Are there any details on those or other public policies that could help us get the manufacturing sector back on track? Well, I think we have to accept at this point that it's important to stay focused that manufacturing is something that we want. For a long time, there was, there was a lot of dispute in the U.S. about, well, maybe it's okay to sort of lose our manufacturing. Maybe it's okay that more things are being made overseas if we come up with the ideas. And coming up with the ideas are great, but in pandemics and wars, where stuff is made makes a difference. Because as we've seen, the uh, PPEs and the vaccines, countries that had their own production kind of kept it for themselves. Same thing in the case of wars or, or hostilities, there's you have essential items that are being made by other countries that maybe you're having tensions with. That's, that's not a good thing. And the U.S. is a large enough country that we should be able to have a substantial industrial base at home just for the purposes of resilience and safety. Yeah, I think that's a, yeah, definitely this has been, the pandemic's been an object lesson in, in what can go wrong when you don't have those uh, kind of capabilities onshore you often find yourself at the back of the line waiting for other countries to kind of satisfy their own needs first and, and then maybe they'll export to you. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? This was the big complaint about the vaccines is that you know, Canada woke up and discovered, hey, we have no vaccine manufacturing <laughs> and we can't really count on our friends in the US to sort of send them over quite yet. Yeah, and, and you, may, you may think that it's the moral thing to do to export these things or it's the right thing to do, but no politician, I think, in a democracy could, could run on a platform like that of exporting. And, look, and look, look what happened in India, which is that the Indian vaccine makers had committed to supplying poor countries with vaccines, but they realized that they had to supply their own country first. And it's difficult not to, not to understand why. And, you know, there's a lot of countries that are not big enough to, to have their own industrial base, but there's really no reason why the U.S. can't. Yeah, that makes sense. So as you know, Michael, I, I study technology policy as well and uh, had a busy 24 hours. Uh, there's currently um, some movement on a, a set of bills to kind of rein in the largest tech companies um, and change antitrust laws to apply to only a few of the, of the big tech companies. Um, so there are a few far left and far right members of Congress that are teaming up in these efforts. But I noticed with your report, you know, eight out of the 10 investment heroes fit in this category. 
which makes it seem like a bad idea to kind of attack these companies now or break them up. How could these legislative proposals hurt the job market? Could this hurt our economy? Like, what do you think the effects of these ideas would be? Well, one of the things that is clear is that these tech, e-commerce, and telecom companies are both big investors in the U.S. They've taken up a lot of the slack that the manufacturers have fallen short on. They are also big job producers, and they've been able to sort of produce, they produce, they created net new jobs during the pandemic. And they're also low, flat or falling prices. So you don't actually have price increases being passed on to consumers. It's actually tough to understand why one would want to break them up as a, what would, would, it, what would you would accomplish by that? I mean, I can understand if you thought that they were actually sort of engaged in practices that were, that were anti-competitive, but given that we would expect a monopolist to constrain the market by not investing, by not hiring, and by raising prices, they're engaging in behavior that is pro-competitive, pro-consumer, pro-productivity, and pro-economy at this point. So I I don't think it's a good idea for the US economy to to break them up. Um, I would also note that we we didn't, the US has seen in the past companies that were driven by innovation and growth and had large shares of the market. Companies like Kodak and IBM. And these were never broken up. We don't break up, we, we break up companies that were built by agglomeration, by, by bringing other companies together and kind of growing in that way and sort of reducing competition by illicit means. The idea that we try to break up companies that are highly productive and seem to be giving consumers and the economy what it needs, it's kind of odd. It is odd to me, yeah. And I think I'm glad you mentioned uh, the corporate giants of, of yore because that's where a lot of the, you know, the corporate labs, the actual heart of private R&D used to take place was mostly in these large labs um, run by big companies like IBM, like AT&T, like Kodak, like Xerox. Um, we have a bit of that today with companies like Google and they have Google has their um, moonshot projects that they invest in, but really want to see more of that and be encouraging, in my opinion, our largest companies to be reinvesting a lot of their money in the next big thing, the next moonshot. It's, it's fascinating because you go back to the progressive movement of the early 1900s and late 1800s that was associated with the growth of antitrust. And there's two types of companies. One is antitrust means antitrusts, trusts that uh, were companies like Standard Oil that were sort of put together out of various bits and pieces. And it is fairly obvious that government has an important role to play in stopping something like that from happening. It's much less clear when you get to companies that are highly productive, um, highly innovative, job creating, creating good jobs and lowering prices that the right thing to do is to break them up. It seems to be anti-progressive rather than pro-progressive. I agree with that. And I think in my experience, this is the issue I work on the most. It just seems to be about more, in my opinion, in, in terms of political speech, it's about political speech. It's about if you're on the right, it's that the big tech platforms are censoring our speech. They're deplatforming us. They're banning people we like. And if you're on the left, you might say platforms are sp- spreading too much misinformation. They're promoting too much conservative speech or speech that I disagree with. Uh, 
But then you ask yourself, why, why are we breaking them up? How will that help uh, solve those kind of speech or political content issues? And when the economic effects are so positive based on the, all the great work you do, Michael, um, it really just seems to have the narrative kind of backwards to me of people you know, attacking these companies for things that aren't even about the economics, really. I, I, yeah, a speech is, is, is a topic for another podcast. But I think, I think in the end, I think you're absolutely right. There's, there's a whole new discussion that needs to go on about speech that is difficult to have these days because of the political conflicts where the, the tech companies are, I wouldn't say innocent bystanders because clearly they're not innocent <laughs> of anything, okay? They are, um, they're doing what they can but, and they're kind of right in the middle of it. But the speech uh, question is, is really important and we sort of don't have the right way of thinking about it with sort of these antitrust or economic tools not getting us to the place that that we need to be well i wholeheartedly agree so let's you and i can stick to our knitting here and, and stay with the economics so for our next question i want to ask you about um you also recently published a report asking if the tech e-commerce sector is replacing manufacturing um what did that report find and how did it inform the investment here of support you just published well i think you know we're sort of we're sort of used to thinking about we're used to thinking about manufacturing jobs as these great jobs for non-college workers and that this is that ultimately that part of the big problems in the economy has come from the loss of manufacturing jobs. And there was a long time that, that tech companies were blamed for not creating jobs. But in fact, they've created an enormous number of jobs in recent years, and they far outpaced not just manufacturing, obviously, but the healthcare sector. So they've become the major job producer in the economy, and not just creating jobs, but creating good jobs, and not just creating good jobs, but creating good jobs for workers with, without a college education. And you look and you sort of see that the entry-level jobs for manufacturing and for people without experience in most parts of the country is around 15 to $17 an hour. And that's kind of about where e-commerce fulfillment jobs at this point are. And so, you know, in a lot of places, the, the, the choice between a manufacturing job and, and a job in the e-commerce fulfillment center is um, much more, much more touch and go than you might think. And so what's happened here is that the, the tech e-commerce sector has become the main driving force for job growth in the economy, which is also one of the reasons why breaking up these companies might actually not be a good idea. Well, Michael, since you mentioned uh, e-commerce uh, fulfillment jobs, of course, the first thing I think about is Amazon. And we're discussing wages uh, for entry-level workers. And I'm I'm aware that they have a, I think a $15 starting wage for, for entry-level workers, as well as they give them healthcare benefits, the same kind of benefits that their office workers receive higher up the chain in Amazon. And so when progressives think about big companies like this, what standards should they be holding them to? Are there things that Amazon and companies like them aren't doing yet that they need to change? Well, progressives need to uh, recognize that, that workers in e-commerce fulfillment centers are getting paid better than retail workers and they're getting better benefits in a, in, a, in a full work week. So these are just real uh, pluses that progressives have to recognize. One, one big issue is safety in the, in, the, in the fulfillment centers. And this is something that Amazon it seems to be increasingly aware of and taking steps to deal with, which I think is really important because you, know, you go back and you look historically and unionization movements were often much more animated by workplace safety than they were by than they were by wages uh, so, so this is it's, it's actually a key that 
Amazon seems to be um, taking steps to deal with this issue. Well, this all sounds great. I know that this is, we discussed multiple reports that you published recently. You've been very busy. Um, so people want to read more about this and follow your work more closely. Um, where can they find your stuff, Michael? They can go to progressivepolicy.org where they can find the Investment Heroes Report, the report on jobs, and, and Alec, and they can find all the reports that you write too. <laughs> Mine aren't as good as Michael's, but uh, you can also yeah, find my work there as well. And we hope that you all um, follow the work that PPI is producing across a wide variety of topics. Um, and thank you all for joining us today on the Radically Pragmatic Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.